Morning. It is a blessing, an honor, a privilege to stand before you this morning and have the opportunity to present God's word. Um, filling in for Pastor Chad, which is a very difficult task because I am not on his level yet. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to keep working at it until one day maybe I will be. So, um, Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Y'all are so kind. There's a whole bunch of Barnabases in this place all the time. I thank God for that. Well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 today, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so put your seatbelt on because it's going to be a ride. Um, But before we get into Acts chapter 16, I'm going to give us a brief recap of Acts chapter 15 so that we're on the same page. Acts chapter 15 begins with a controversy that arose in regards to circumcision. The text says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The dispute rose between these men and Paul and Barnabas. It became so heated that the church decided that the case should be brought before the elders and apostles in Jerusalem. So the church appointed Paul and Barnabas to lead the charge. The outcome of this meeting uh, made it clear that the Gentiles who trusted in Christ were not required to be circumcised. Acts chapter 15 verses 19 and 20 says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled, and from blood. After settling one dispute at the start of Acts chapter 15, the chapter ends with more drama, but this time it's between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had what the text calls a sharp disagreement. I call it a fight. Over whether or not John Mark should join them on what would be Paul's second missionary journey. Paul felt that because John Mark had chose to return home and abandon the team on his first missionary journey in Acts 13, 13, that John Mark would probably do it again. However, Barnabas, who is known as the son of encouragement, felt that John Mark deserved another chance. And thank God for the Barnabases among us. Consequently, this disagreement among the brothers caused Paul and Barnabas to split up and proceed with ministry in separate regions. Um, isn't it just like God to use what I'm sure was a very painful separation and experience between those brothers to fulfill his purpose? If they had not had this fight, there would have been only one missionary team that went out instead of two. This is a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. Barnabas took John Mark and headed for his native land of Cyprus, while Paul took Silas and headed for Syria and Cilicia. I think it's important to note here that even giants of the faith don't always see eye to eye. But the truth of the gospel marches on in spite of human weakness. Even though these brothers had a falling out over this issue, we learn from later biblical texts that Paul and Barnabas eventually settled their differences And Paul came to love and appreciate Barnabas in the end. Thank God that it's possible for us to be reconciled to one another even after strong disagreements. 
even disagreements that might cause us to separate from one another for a season. I've actually had this happen in my own life, and God restored that relationship even stronger than it was in the first place. So God works through our failures. Thank him for that. This brings us to our text this morning in Acts chapter 16 as we follow Paul's second missionary journey. Paul's intent for this mission was to revisit the churches that he had established on his first missionary journey and also to deliver the report from the Jerusalem Council regarding the ruling about circumcision among the Gentiles. Pray with me this morning. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to stand before your people and present your word, God. Lord, I am nothing apart from your spirit living in and through me, God. I have nothing to offer. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning from the text and use me as your vessel for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I've worked at my current employer for over six years now. But before starting my career, it seemed that the chances of using the two degrees that I earned in college were slim, if not ever going to happen at all. Um, After graduating from college, I worked at various places that had absolutely nothing to do with my current career as a video editor, producer, and web developer. The most memorable of these odd jobs I worked after graduation were one as a night auditor for a hotel here in town, and the other was as a Pizza Hut delivery guy. As the night auditor, my job was to count up all the receipts, make sure that all of the money was accounted for at the end of the night, a few cleaning duties, and also to make sure that people that were renting rooms would get in their rooms for the evening. Um, It would be safe to say, it would be safe to assume that this was not what I had in mind when I finished college to be doing with my life. Um, And I ended up actually getting fired from that job as a result of my faith. There was a party culture among the managers and a group of the employees that worked there and ran the night shift. And because of my openness about my faith, they came to view me as a threat. The funny thing is that I never had any intention of going to the higher-ups and and telling on them, even though as a Christian I probably should have done that shame on me. Um, But they assumed that I would do it, and so they got me fired because old Rudolph here wouldn't join in all the reindeer games. So uh, after that job, I uh, began my next great adventure as a Pizza Hut delivery driver. I figured, now I can really put those two college degrees to work, delivering these pizzas. (laughs) Sarcasm intended. Uh, One of my most memorable moments uh, from that job was delivering a pizza to this one guy and he pays for it. He pulls out this wad of $100 bills to pay for his order. And I'm, I'm thinking, hey, man, I'm probably going to get a nice tip here. He's got a pocket full of money. Nah. Nah, actually, he asked me to pay the 30 or 40 cents to add to his order so that he didn't have to break one of those $100 bills. So once again, I'm thrilled and excited to be using those two college degrees and all of those thousands of dollars that I spent in school. <laughs> but um, fast forward a year later into this job, And my wife and I take the kids swimming at the YMCA. While we're swimming, I run into this guy at the pool who 
actually owns the production company that I work for now. He remembered me in, from the past when I was making music with a former Packer player, uh, Nick Barnett. And Nick had had a music video done through this guy's production company. And so that gave us some point of communication so that, you know, like, I know you, you know me. So that was good. Um, and so I told him, hey, now I've been spending time working on the other side of the camera. So I'm looking for a job. And um, he said, hey, when you, when you get a chance, bring your resume on down and, you know, we'll talk. Now, the story didn't end happily ever after right at that moment. But... God was still working in that situation and opening a door for me. And now I do work for that company. So praise God for that. Now I get to use those degrees and pay back all of that money, right? Uh, At this point, you might ask, why is any of this important in relation to Acts chapter 16? Well, it's important because it's a picture of how God works in mysterious ways and how he guides his people. Much like I found myself in various working environments I never intended on being in before reaching my current destination, I believe you will see in Acts chapter 16 how God opens and closes doors for his people and takes them places they initially didn't intend to go. In his divine sovereignty, when God says go, his yes is sometimes no. And that's actually the title of our message today. When God says go, his yes is sometimes no. As we follow Paul on his second missionary journey, we will see how God actively orders the steps of Paul and how he orders our steps in order to build his church using some of the most unlikely people in some of the most unlikely ways. Because God's yes is sometimes no, you must trust God, obey God, seek the wisdom of God and his people, and walk in truth to fulfill God's mission. Point number one, because God's yes is sometimes no, you must trust God to fulfill God's mission. Look with me at Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Now, Paul had great success in Derbe and in Lystra on his first missionary journey. At this point in the passage, five years have passed since Paul last visited these places. If you recall in Acts chapter 14, verses 20 through 21, Paul had preached the gospel and taught many people in Derby before departing. And Lystra was actually where a crowd tried to honor Paul and Barnabas as the pagan gods Jupiter and Mercurius after Paul had healed a man who had been lame from birth in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. We also see in verse 1 that Timothy's mother was a believer. So it would be safe to assume that Timothy and his mother became Christians as a result of Paul's first missionary journey five years earlier. I would imagine watching Paul's miraculous acts and great courage, even after being stoned in Acts chapter 14, left a great impression on Timothy and his mother and ultimately led to their conversion. Verse 2, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. I'm sure this good report from the brothers concerning Timothy influenced Paul's decision to take Timothy along with him, which we'll see in verse 3. I believe another truth exists here as well. God always provides what we need to accomplish his purposes. 
We saw earlier that John, Mark, and Barnabas left Paul after their dispute. But here we see God's divine hand in providing Paul a swift replacement to travel with him as he spread the gospel. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, some might assume that Paul's circumcision of Timothy was in direct contradiction to the decree that was given at the Jerusalem council, but that would be an incorrect assumption. If we took a look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, we see that Paul resisted circumcising Titus, who was a pure Greek, when the gospel was at stake. I would argue that if Paul were insistent on having all Christian converts be circumcised, he would have surely taken the opportunity to have Titus circumcised. Timothy was a little bit different because Timothy was both a Jew and a Greek. And rabbinic law taught that a child born of a Jewish mother and a Greek father was considered to be Jewish. Paul knew that Timothy would have butted heads all the time with the Jews that he was seeking to evangelize if he were not circumcised. So as a way of showing respect for his Jewish heritage, Paul thought it best that Timothy be circumcised as a means of promoting Jew and Gentile unity. Timothy's circumcision would actually act as a bridge between these two cultures. This was a practical way for Timothy to become all things to all men in order to reach them with the gospel. As we know, this idea was a vital part of Paul's own missionary strategy. If we read 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, it says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. This is also a message to us as modern-day missionaries. We should be willing to adapt without adopting the sin of the culture. If taking on certain cultural customs that are not sinful will help us reach people with the gospel, then we should be willing to do that. Verse 4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Of course, the decision here is a reference to the judgment that was made earlier in Acts 15, 20, and 21 stating that the Gentiles were not required to be circumcised, but that they were to stay away from things that had been offered up to idols, avoid eating bloody or strangled animals, and also to refrain from sexual immorality. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. As I thought about the fact that the churches being strengthened in the faith and growing daily was connected to the news delivered to the churches about circumcision, I couldn't help but ask the question, why would news about circumcision and eating certain foods cause the church to grow? I believe it was because this decision freed the Gentiles from the bondage of legalism, which resulted in their joy. And as we know, joy is contagious. Jesus himself describes legalism in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4, in a way that makes this even more clear. Jesus says, 
the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The church grew because its members were no longer burdened by the heavy weights that legalism places on people's shoulders. Scripture tells us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works so that no man can boast. Remember the story of David and Goliath? There's a point in the story before David actually sets out to slay Goliath where King Saul sends sins for David after hearing how David had spoke to the men of Israel concerning Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 26, this is actually one of my favorite Bible verses of all times, and I I can't help but laugh usually every time I read it. It says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And I just thought, that's bold. That is bold. That is the boldness of youth, right? (laughs) Um, Anyway, Saul doubts David has the ability to handle Goliath. David decides to run down his resume to the king of how he slayed many dangerous beasts in his job as a shepherd. Afterwards, Saul gives David his blessing and and then attempts to place his grown man armor on young David. So David tries to put on all this heavy armor, and he realizes he couldn't fight the way he was used to fighting with all this extra weight on his shoulders. In fact, David's words were, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. In other words, David knew he could not trust in armor he had never worn. Instead, David picks up his trusty staff, his five smooth stones, his trusty slingshot, and he takes his mighty God and goes out and beats Goliath down, as we know. David put his trust in the right place, in God, not in Saul's armor or in his own ability, but in his God. David's trust in God did not fail him, and it will never fail you either. As we consider trusting God, let us now turn back to Paul. How do we see Paul trusting God in these first five verses? And how do we live in a way that shows that we trust God when his yes is a no? Paul demonstrates his trust for God by continuing the mission in spite of the loss of his companion Barnabas. What if Paul had assumed that the loss of Barnabas was reason enough not to proceed with his journey? Or at the very least, What if he decided he needed to find a replacement for Barnabas before he could go forward? If Paul had gone that route, he may have never met and formed the relationship that he did with Timothy, who was actually later in the scripture referred to as Paul's son in the faith. So it was so important that Paul still trusted God despite the dispute, despite the problems that he was facing. He still trusted God and went forward with the mission that God had given him. One way we can display our trust for God is to trust his word. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When you trust God, you will also do what he says. 
I can tell my wife that I love her all day long, but she's not going to believe it until my actions match my words. If I say, baby, I love you, but I fail to provide for her, that's not love at all. In the same way, if you tell God to trust him but refuse to do what he says, then that's not trust at all. Point number two, because God's yes is sometimes no, you must seek the wisdom of God and his people to fulfill God's mission. Verse six, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the words in Asia. God in his grace leads Paul by saying no to Asia, but saying yes to Europe. The text also says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit, of which there is uncertainty about exactly how they were forbidden. Were they told not to go through a divine vision? Did the Lord withdraw their sense of peace? Did they have transportation issues? Was it sickness that stopped them? We just don't know. All the text tells us is that the Holy Spirit did not allow them to go. The method God uses is never as important as the truth God is communicating. When God closes a door, we don't need to lose hope. Instead, we need to continue trusting the Lord as he leads us. Verse 7, And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. So after being denied by the Holy Spirit to enter Asia, Paul now seeks to go north into Bithynia, but is again prevented by the Holy Spirit that changes his course, this time to Troas. As we can see, Paul did not originally set out to go to Troas, but it was God's will that he should go there. Herein lies a lesson for us. As God's disciples, we must be willing to lay down our plans and our will in order to follow God's will and God's plan. We also see something here that we often don't think about. That is the fact that God sometimes guides us by closing doors just as often as he guides us by opening doors. God's closed doors are not necessarily a bad thing. I wonder how many doors God has closed in my life that I would have eagerly walked through not knowing that it would have led to my downfall. I think it would be safe to say that closed doors can actually be an act of grace from God. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In verses 6 through 10, we see the operation of the Trinity ordering the steps of the missionaries. We see the Holy Spirit in verse 6, the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7, and God in verse 10. This is a beautiful picture of how all three persons of the Trinity are actively involved in guiding and directing God's people. Something interesting we see in verse 10 and the next few verses after are what are referred to as the we sections of Scripture. At this point in the story, Dr. Luke, the author of Acts, cleverly and quietly inserts himself into the text by using the word we. 
Luke wants us to know that he is present with the mission team for this part of the journey. Verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sumthras and the following day to Neapolis. Sumthras is a mountainous island that was on the direct route between Troas and Neapolis, which was the port of Philippi. Scholars point out that the travelers must have had the wind at their backs in order to make it between that distance of 150 miles in two days because their journey on the way back actually took them five days. So God was really moving and moving them along. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Philippi was a Roman colony and the leading city of the district. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Isn't that cool? That shows, once again, how our Bible is true history. Because you can go look that up, right? We know Alexander the Great was a real man who lived. Philippi came under Roman rule in 168 B.C. and was enlarged in 42 B.C. when... Here goes some more old people from old stories. Antony and Octavian defeated Brutus and Cassius, and some of you probably heard those names before, um, in 31 BC. Octavian granted the city the status of a colony, and a number of military veterans settled there. This history is important because it serves to show that Philippi had a heavy Roman influence. It was actually referred to as a little Rome. This information will become more significant for us as we see the charges that are brought against Paul and Silas later on in the chapter. There's another significant point here. It's believed that the missionaries stayed in Philippi for several weeks, and it's suggested that there were probably multiple converts in that time, but Luke only chooses to highlight three of those conversions. Why does he do that? Luke's purpose in highlighting these three different conversion experiences was to show how God uses the gospel to break down the dividing wall between people regardless of class, ethnicity, or race, or culture. And isn't that very important in the time of history that we're in right now? We are shown the conversion of Lydia, who is a wealthy Asian woman, the exorcism and conversion of a poor native Greek slave girl, and the conversion of a Roman jailer who would be considered a blue-collar worker. This truth is so encouraging as I consider the current climate of our nation. The unity that we long for will never be gained through our political parties, our ethnicities, or any other means outside of believing in and trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who knows me already knows that I'm not mechanically inclined. If you have an issue with your car or your lawnmower or any other piece of equipment, I am not the guy that you want to call. (laughs) Because I realize this is not where God has gifted me, I'm quick to reach out to other people who have those skills. I'm also quick to call a friend after leaving the dealership and they give me some crazy estimate that I am not about to pay or when I visit some shop that I've never visited before. Why? Because my mechanic friends can tell me whether or not I'm being ripped off. And most times I am being ripped off. (laughs) 
I think most of us have enough sense to seek this kind of practical wisdom, but we fail to apply the same principles when it comes to our Christian walk. If you have a spiritual problem, you need to seek the wisdom of God and spirit-filled people. It grieves me when I see Christians seeking the wisdom of the world for issues that only God and his people have answers for. We've all done it. We have an issue with our finances. And instead of looking to somebody like a Dave Ramsey or a Christian brother or sister that we know deals in finance, what do we do? We find ourselves going out to the Internet trying to listen to the latest financial guru to solve all of our financial issues. This should not be our posture. We should have that heart and that thought that I need to first go to God, but also go to brothers and sisters who are equipped to deal with these types of things. In my examples, failure to follow these principles may cost us a few dollars. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we stand to lose things that are much more important than money. We must learn to lean on and trust in God as well as the faithful people that God has placed in our lives for guidance and spiritual issues that affect our souls. Why do I say you must seek the wisdom of God and his people? Because that is exactly what Paul did. And I believe this is not only descriptive, but also prescriptive for us today. If we intend to fulfill God's mission and purpose for our lives, there's no such thing as a solo soldier. I call that a casualty. A soldier without his team in the middle of a battle is more likely to find themselves in danger. In the same way, there's no such thing as a solo Christian. Why? Because God's word informs us that we are designed for and are most effective when we are living in community with other believers. If you notice the last few verses we read, the author intentionally inserts the word we. I explained that this was to inform us that Luke had joined the journey at this point, but we also serves another purpose in this passage when it's tied with the word concluding. We in verse 10 is what I'm referring to. This was to show us that Paul not only received a vision from the Lord concerning where they should travel, but we and concluding together indicates that Paul consulted the godly men who were with him on the journey. See, concluding is a plural word, and one person doesn't go around concluding by themselves. Paul took the time to not only, he listened to God first of all, but he also talked to his brothers to make sure that he was hearing from God correctly. Proverbs 24, 6 says, For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. And Isaiah 30 verses 1 through 2 speaks to how important it is to seek God's counsel above any other counsel. It reads, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel, but not of me, and who devise plans, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who walk to go down to Egypt and have not asked my advice. I'm so thankful that God has placed godly men around me whom I can consult when I'm trying to discern God's will or direction for my life. There have been many occasions where I've reached out to these wise and godly men for help so that I could see things more clearly when seeking God's direction. 
And oftentimes their counsel has kept me from making decisions I may have later came to regret. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Point number three, because God's yes is sometimes no, you must obey God to fulfill God's mission. Verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Apparently, Philippi did not have a Jewish synagogue. So the missionaries went to the closest thing to a synagogue. Since Luke adds that the congregation consisted of women, it is assumed that this explains why there was no synagogue in Philippi. In order to have a synagogue, it was necessary to have a minimum of 10 men to establish it. So Paul and the others joined the women for worship on the Sabbath and sat down waiting for an invitation to speak. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia was from Thyatira, which was located in the Lycus Valley on the other side of the Aegean in Asia. Scholars believe that because that area was previously known as the ancient kingdom of Lydia, it's possible that Lydia was not so much her name as it was her trade name. Or in other words, her name may have been derived from what she did for a living. Thyatira had been famous for centuries for its dyes. Lydia herself specialized in a cloth treated with an expensive purple dye. And we know that purple is oftentimes associated with royalty. So who do you think would be buying Lydia's goods? It's believed that Lydia also may have been a Macedonian agent of, of a Thyatiran manufacturer. So Lydia was a powerful businesswoman. How we say it today, Lydia was a boss. <laughs> this verse also refers to Lydia as a worshiper of God. We should not take this phrase to mean that Lydia was already saved right here. Lydia was essentially believing and behaving as a Jew without actually being Jewish. As Lydia listened to Paul, to Paul's message, the Lord opened the eyes of her heart and she responded to the gospel message. God often works in this way. You may be an unbeliever, but God has been drawing you to himself through various situations. Then God sends a messenger with the gospel and you respond to the call. This is why we should never neglect the opportunity to witness if we have the chance. We have no clue whose hearts God has been working on until we show up. It may be one simple word that we speak that brings somebody into the kingdom, and it's all worth it. Verse 15, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It's important to know here that Lydia's family was not automatically considered saved just because Lydia had been converted. That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that every person must accept Christ for themselves. Our parents and our grandparents' salvation will not be accredited to us. Instead, it's safe to say and draw from this scripture that upon her conversion, 
Lydia brought the good news home to her family who got baptized and then and received Christ. Received Christ and then got baptized. Do you remember the excitement that you had when you first came to know Christ? I remember the excitement I had. You couldn't keep my mouth shut. And so I imagine it was the same for Lydia, that she went out with joy and came home to the family and was like, hey, I'm, I know who the real God is now, family, and we need to all get on board with this. And, and along with that, she had Paul with her. How could she, the family not get saved? If Paul shows up at your house, you're probably going to end up getting saved. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. The spirit of divination spoken of here in the original language literally reads spirit of Python. According to mythology, the Python guarded the temple of Apollo. Eventually, the word Python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom the Python spoke. Local people considered fortune tellers to be inspired by Apollo and the Python, so many people in that region would come from all around to hear what she had to predict about the future. Verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Don't miss how clever Satan is right here. By having the slave girl yell out the truth of the message and who the missionaries were, Satan was attempting to associate the works of God with the works of darkness. Even throughout the Gospels, we see instances where demon-possessed people spoke true things about Jesus but Jesus would rebuke them and shut them down every time. Verse 18, And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. I love that Luke points out that Paul became greatly annoyed. I think it's important for us to know that even our heroes of the faith had their moments of frustration. Paul was certainly a human just like the rest of us. I can also tell you from personal experience that I have become greatly annoyed when I'm out in the community witnessing sometimes too. So this is not a stretch. Verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. There was a lot of money to be made in this business, and we can see that even today there's a lot of money to be made from this business. So instead of her owners being remorseful about using the demon-possessed girl, they were angry that they were going to miss out on capitalizing on, on the bondage and the pain that she was in. Side note, if you're a Christian and you're reading horoscopes and looking into tarot cards, Stop it from the enemy. It is from the devil, and it's meant to distract you and pull you away from the faith. It's no different than this practice that we see right here, but I digress. Verse 20, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Allow me here to quote 
a commentator. The commentator is Warren Wearsby. He says, there, the slave girl he's referring to, their only recourse was the Roman law. And they thought they had a pretty good case because the missionaries were Jewish and were propagating a religion not approved by Rome. Moved by both religious and racial prejudices, the magistrates acted rashly and did not investigate the matter fully. This neglect on their part later brought them embarrassment. There's also another commentary by John Stott that I believe sheds even more light on this. Stott says, The accusations of causing a riot and introducing an alien religion were serious. Officially, the Roman citizens may not practice any alien cult that has not that has not been received the public sanction of the state. But customarily, he might do so as long as his cult did not otherwise offend against the laws and usages of Roman life, i.e., so long as it did not involve political or social crimes. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that the same thing that goes on now? You can talk about your faith all day long, but the minute you start talking about Jesus as being exclusive and being the only way, nobody is okay with it out there. And this is the same thing that's happening here. Same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We can easily read verses 24 and 25 and, and skip right over the torture that Paul and Silas were in here. They were left swollen, lacerated, sticky with blood. And then on top of that, they didn't even have an opportunity to lay down in their, in their cells because their feet were in those stocks that were attached to the wall. And those stocks also had a place in them for your legs to go so that they could stretch your torso. So Paul and Silas were inside of the prison going through excruciating pain. If I was to compare this to a modern-day jail or prison, it'd be like the Hyatt Regency. This is so much different than anything that we could even come to understand nowadays. But even in the midst of that, we find them singing and praying to God. Can you imagine what the other prisoners were thinking, knowing that Paul and Silas were in the prison just like them, going through just as much pain as they were? This had to be a powerful witness to those prisoners. But God wasn't done showing out yet. Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. It was Roman law that if a guard lost a prisoner, he was given the same punishment that the prisoners would have received. So if there were men inside of that prison that day that had committed capital crimes, you can only imagine what that jailer was thinking. 
He would rather take his own life than to receive the punishment that was due to these men. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. As I read this verse, I couldn't help but sit in amazement that the other prisoners didn't try to escape. If you were in jail and the doors flung open and your shackles fell off and the guards snoozing, don't you think you try to run up out of the prison? That was, that was just really, it really stuck out to me. Of course, we know this, this was a work of God. It was God that was working in those prisoners and working in that situation while they all sat still. But I can't help but wonder if those prisoners that were in there with Paul and Silas didn't get saved too. They were there listening to Paul and Silas praying and, and speaking the gospel while they were in their bonds. Luke doesn't say that that's what happened, but I, I'm allowed to imagine a little bit. Um, verse 29, and the jailer called for the lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Again, just like Lydia's family became Christians as a result of her conversion, the same thing is happening here with the jailers and his family. Paul and Silas went home with the newly converted jailer, and the jailer's witness, along with Paul and Silas's witness, resulted in their salvation. I would also imagine that the jailer and his family probably became members of the first European church that was being established there in Philippi. It only makes sense. Verse 34 Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The following quote is from a book titled Mr. Jones Meets the Master by Peter Marshall. I wonder what would happen if we all agreed to read one of the Gospels until we came to a place that told us to do something then went out to do it. And only after we had done it, began reading again. There are aspects of the gospel that are puzzling and difficult to understand, but our problems are not centered around the things we don't understand, but rather in the things we do understand, the things we could not possibly misunderstand. Our problem is not so much that we don't know what we should do. We know perfectly well but we don't want to do it. In the words of Vody Bauckham, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. But isn't that our dilemma when it comes to obedience? Particularly obedience as it relates to being witnesses for Jesus. It's not that we haven't heard or don't understand the Great Commission. It's that we don't want to do it. What if Paul had decided not to share the gospel with Lydia, the servant the servant girl, and and the jailer. For sure they would not have received Christ that day and been granted salvation. Likewise, without obedient servants of the Lord to deliver the gospel message, many others may be delayed in coming to know Jesus too. Of course, the work of salvation is completely in the hands of the Lord. 
but God uses people to deliver that message. Obedience isn't always an easy thing to do. We see in this passage, but it's necessary if we're going to fulfill God's mission of reaching the lost. The obedience of these missionaries landed them in prison on account of false accusations from abusive and greedy men. But painful possibilities should not keep us from being obedient to what God has commanded. How can you be obedient to God's command to go make disciples of all nations? You can start by doing what's contained right within the words of the Great Commission. That is to trust that God is with you always, even until the end of the age. If we know that God is with us, we should have no fear. A practical way we can fulfill God's mission is to have simple, intentional conversations with lost people. When Lydia is converted in this story, it was not because Paul had preached some grand sermon to Lydia. The text actually says he sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. In fact, the original language of Acts 16, 14, the word spoke literally means personal conversation, not preaching. If we have the Holy Spirit living within us, there is power even in our conversations with lost people if we are intentional about those conversations. Point number four, my last point, and then we're going to get out of here. Because God's yes is sometimes no, you must walk in truth to fulfill God's mission. Verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Go ahead, Paul. I like that boldness. (laughs) The police reported these words to the magistrates, and you're hearing police. I'm reading the English Standard Version just in case anybody is wondering because we know that police was not in the original Greek, right? But anyway, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out, and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, that's why I said, is it possible that the jailer and his family became part of the first church? When, they came, when he came out and seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. In his book, Soul Keeping, Pastor John Ortberg describes his mentorship by Dallas Willard, who was a famous Christian philosopher in the following illustration. Toward the end of one of his philosophy classes, a student raised an objection that was both insulting toward Dallas and clearly wrong. Instead of correcting him, Dallas gently said that this would be a good place to end the class for the day. Afterward, a friend approached Dallas. Why did you let him get away with that? Why didn't you demolish him, Dallas replied. I was practicing the discipline of not having to have the last word. So yes, Dallas said in response to my confession, being right is actually a very hard burden 
to be able to carry gracefully and humbly. That's why nobody likes to sit next to the kid in class who knows all the answers. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. Paul could very well have appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen right away. Even though the text text kind of suggests that the events happened so fast leading to his arrest that maybe they didn't have an opportunity for him to speak up about that. However, I believe God was leading Paul to save that truth and keep it in his pocket for a more opportune time. We also see again how God's yes is sometimes no. If Paul would have chosen to and or had the chance to appeal to his Roman citizenship before he got arrested, he would have missed the opportunity to see God show up in the miracle of shaking the earth, breaking the shackles, and opening the doors of the prison which led to the salvation of the jailer and his family. The saving of souls is always more important to God than our rights and our comforts. What truth was Paul walking in here and why is it important? The truth was that Paul was not only a Jew, but also a Roman citizen. It was important in fulfilling God's mission because Paul's purpose for being in Philippi was to preach the gospel and establish a church. If Paul would have left, would have let the magistrates sneak them out of the city without standing on the truth of who he actually was, it could have severely hindered the witness of the church he was leaving behind in Philippi. You can imagine the fake news that would have been spread about the church if Paul had allowed the magistrates to send them away secretly after being falsely imprisoned like common criminals. It would have been easy for people to dismiss the gospel message along with the Christians that would remain in Philippi if people could claim that their leaders were nothing more than lying, disobedient criminals. Who would want to go to that church? As God's witnesses, it's important that we not allow the gospel message to be spoken ill of due to our failure to walk in truth. Sometimes we are the only Bible that people will ever read. Will there be times where we do this better than others? Of course. But overall, the picture of our lives should be marked by truth. In light of Acts chapter 16, let us labor to trust God in believing his word and living a life that shows that we do believe him. Obey God by living out the Great Commission, and by his grace, seizing every opportunity to draw men to him by telling them about what God has done in Christ Jesus. Let us also seek the wisdom of God and his people and reject the wisdom of this world which is passing away. And let us walk in the truth that there is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved other than by the name of Jesus Christ so that we can fulfill God's mission for us in Green Bay and to the ends of the earth. God bless you. Lord, thank you for this word that came to me first before it was even sent out to your people. Lord, thank you for these truths. Um, And Father, I know that I fall short of many of these in my own life. And I ask you to give me the courage, to give me the boldness, to give me the heart of love that I need to constantly and consistently have the words 
of life on my lips, ready and willing to speak the truth of your gospel to lost men and women. Amen.